Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. George Nuremberg is a professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. For over a decade, he has studied and published on the problems of medication-associated sexual dysfunction. Dr. Nuremberg, thank you so much for being with us. Sexual dysfunction can come from depression itself, other medical conditions, the medications that we use to treat these very problems, and many social problems as well. We need to know how to understand and control the dysfunction. But let's start with a statistical question. How common is it? Well, it's actually quite common, and depending on the disease entity that one's treating, but people generally know and have always thought that sexual dysfunction comes with that. Sexual dysfunction is seen in cardiovascular disease, particularly hypertension, diabetes, so it really covers a whole gamut of different conditions, both as a direct symptom and often a consequence of treatment. If it is a consequence of treatment, is there any sort of rule of thumb about how quickly it presents itself after a medication has started? No, it actually depends a lot on basically understanding that interaction. In some patients, and that's why we actually use depression, because in a certain way when the SSRI medications came in, it sort of became probably the most prescribed drugs in the world for a period of time. A lot of attention was paid to that side effect. The problem was some patients might have a depression without sexual dysfunction associated with it, and then once they started treatment, would develop it, which would make it look like it was medication-induced. Other patients would come who would have as associated with their depression, sexual dysfunction, and then would get into treatment, start on the medication, and the sexual dysfunction symptoms per se might change. This with some of the depressed patients, you might find that a patient who had no interest in any kind of sexual activities or function of depression would come in after a couple of weeks and say to the doctor, well, now I feel like having sex, but I can't do it. That would sort of imply there was some sort of shift with the treatment perhaps improving the depression, but beginning, you know, its own problem. And then there was also the issue that came up with the drugs like in this whole phosphodiesterase inhibitor group, the Viagras and the Cialis, Levitra, that whole group of medications, where people also saw in urology clinics men who were depressed who had erectile dysfunction. One of the questions was, was the depression caused by the erectile dysfunction versus whether it was caused by something else, you know, secondary to it. So what we really started to see it was a very complicated, clinically questionable issue, but it also provided the doctor with a lot of potential information about how they could treat the patient, whether the patient was improving or not. So we really had to always tease out this difference between was there a sexual dysfunction that had nothing to do with the condition that was just there, was it a sexual dysfunction that might be a symptom of the disease, or was it a sexual dysfunction that was a complication of treatment? All of those might have different implications as one went along. Is that what sometimes has been called the hypoactive sexual desire disorder? Yes. Now, again, it depended on which populations one was talking about. There was a lot of work done in the early 90s on sexual dysfunction. There was a Massachusetts male mental health program. There was a similar study done with women where people started to pick up that there was a significant amount of sexual dysfunction in the population. It involved different phases of sexual dysfunction. So, for instance, in women, one more frequently saw hypoactive sexual desire as opposed to in male populations, the more frequent complaint was erectile dysfunction. In our case, hypoactive sexual desire, one 
one you can understand could be a symptom of depression, or it could be due to other factors, including life changes, relationship issues, and things like that. Actually, from our context, we were seeing it in treatment of depression, hypoactive sexual desire could easily be confused with depression, as opposed to being hypoactive sexual desire, which was one of those sexual dysfunctions that was highly prevalent in the population. So they could be confusing. And one could also see that if one developed complications, let's say from treatment of sexual dysfunction, where if you saw like with the SSRIs, with the antidepressant drugs, for instance, what might happen would be delayed orgasm. Somebody might now have difficulty maintaining lubrication or something like that. All of a sudden, sexual dysfunction becomes complicated or problematic. It's not hard to see how somebody might lose their interest in sexual activity if it's not working well. So it could be a cause, it could be an effect, it could be an interaction. One of the things that becomes very uh, equally complex is that we know diabetes can cause sexual problems. And we know that with a lot of our medications these days, we risk something known as the metabolic syndrome. We induce a diabetic type of problem or actual diabetes in people. So, so how do you work this up? If a patient comes to you and says, hey, doc, you know, I'm putting on weight. I'm feeling better emotionally, but my sex drive is gone. What would be a reasonable way to start working this up? beginning of our research, it, it, it seemed that probably the simplest question was always, how was your sexual life before you became ill? It might have been a problem that somebody might have been having years and years as an independent problem well before that. So it was always an important question to kind of find out what was sort of an early life baseline sexual function like, and then to see how that has changed over a person's life. If someone had basically no problems at all, everything was going along fine until sort of the first beginnings or symptomatic beginnings of, of their illness, one could kind of see how, you know, if everything was fine until, say, five years ago, and then five years ago, weight started increasing, blood sugars started changing, other kinds of things were going, and one might say that's associated with the beginning of the disease, and that may be the issue at that point. There were also patients who, whether it's depression, diabetes, even cardiovascular disease, they may present with lots of symptoms and still not have sexual symptoms. And those may not come on until after treatment begins. So you can start to kind of see what's the temporal connection between changes and lifestyle and disease state as you go along there. So history becomes very important. And, and so if we go back to the old notion of the hypoactive sexual desire disorder, there's a section of it. That I remember them saying there's four types of low libido. There's a lifelong low libido, generalized low, 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 low libido, which is that which comes from medication, situational and acquired. So in the diagnosis, you can't automatically just assume it's the medication is what we're getting at. That's right. That's right. And you know, the one you left out is also iatrogenic. Then that becomes the new category that, that really a lot more interest had because a lot of times that was missed and it was drug-induced and it would be blamed on other things and it would be placed on one of those you know, other kinds of causes. Now, that also has some very important implications, which I think we started to see particularly with treatment depression, but is no different in hypertension or even in diabetes or other kind of conditions. The patients who experience sexual dysfunction as a result of starting on a medication, some kind of treatment, when that happens, almost you know, 75, 80% of them will stop the treatment prematurely. And often, if, especially if the doctor's not asked, 
asking, not tell the doctor. And so what you start to see is really, for, for our interest, it became a major source of, of noncompliance. And then that sets off the whole chain of events again, because as you were even kind of describing, I said patients are starting to get better, things are starting to improve, but then they stop taking the medication because of, of sexual problems. The sexual problems improve very quickly, but then the rest of the disease symptoms start to come back in full force. So we go back to the baseline, which was not a good baseline to start with. Uh, that's right. What about testosterone? We hear about this all the time. Right now on TV, there are commercials for low T. Right. Is that an issue in this? Where? It's, a, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And it became a particularly significant issue for us when we started using these medications for treating women. Now, one of the things that came up in our research, it was fairly straightforward to say that these kinds of drugs like the Viagra type drugs that were being promoted for treating erectile dysfunction, it would make sense to say, well, maybe they'll help men who are having drug-induced sexual dysfunction, and that's pretty straightforward and easy. There was a lot of controversy right from the very beginning with these drugs about whether they had any application in women. One of the problems that came up in the early studies on women was that the effect of these drugs was not as straightforward in women as it was in men. And one of the reasons that it wasn't as straightforward in the women was the, the women were actually somewhat more complicated. If you took men who had erectile dysfunction, pretty much no matter what the cause was, these drugs would work. However, when they would try to do the same thing with, with women, and you started mixing populations of women who were postmenopausal, perimenopausal, premenopausal, on hormone replacement therapy, if they were menopausal, even on birth control pills, which all were medications that affect hormone systems, you start, you did not see the kinds of effects, consistency of effects that you saw in men. And very quickly, people started to say, well, what's the effect of hormones on, on what we're seeing here? And as you point out, with hypoactive sexual desire being primary complaint in women in terms of the prevalence of sexual dysfunction, there was a lot of interest in the issue of whether testosterone was a factor and that there had been research that was showing that there seemed to be an association between low sexual desire and testosterone levels. What also became important and as people looked at that, it wasn't the testosterone level per se, but the free testosterone, so that the amount of testosterone somebody has is pretty much divided up with most of it being protein-bound and not particularly having a lot of activity, and what's known now as free testosterone, which is actually what these treatments try to focus on. And there was some sort of notion that libido and testosterone were tied together. We looked at hormone levels in our female patients that we treated in our studies because we knew that would be certainly one of the questions that would be raised, and it's certainly one of the confounding factors. And what we did see was that actually the women who responded to our, our treatment for their antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction, the ones that got better actually had higher testosterone levels, and their testosterone levels were higher. The question that comes up with many of this research now on free is free testosterone the cause, or is it a marker or an effect? And as we say this, it's very important for everyone who's listening to understand that going to all these internet sites and getting testosterone over the internet is not safe. As for any medication, this needs to be done in very close consultation with your physician to make sure that it's the right thing for you. Absolutely, because actually the treatments aren't necessarily even approved for so we're talking about a lot of you know research interest that has looked at these things from the point of view of trying to understand what the relationship is. So while there have been many reports of 
low testosterone being associated with low interest and then interest improving and testosterone levels going up, it hasn't been all that clear which one was causing which because actually even in our patients who that we were treating who had more of an orgasm dysfunction, who had low desire because they were having pain on intercourse, they weren't able to complete intercourse and lost desires of function. As they got better, their testosterone went up. So testosterone levels may actually be as much a response to treatment and improvement as necessarily, not necessarily being the cause of it. And there's still a lot of work that has to be teased out of that. What adds to that is it's also become very fashionable now to be talking about male menopause. And in terms of male menopause, also this issue of testosterone levels going lower in men and men taking testosterone to feel younger and more active. One of the things that has to be remembered in this is that when you're taking testosterone, particularly for men, whether it's related to other kinds of issues, that increases the risk of heart attack. And so people have to be very careful about this. And this is really not a very well-defined issue at this point. Lots more research has to happen before people can be safely taking these drugs. And one of the other things that's so interesting is that we know that a lot of the antidepressants cause difficulties with erectile function, and it is thought that the, for example, I read that paroxetine can inhibit nitrous oxide, and that in turn leads to the problem which the Viagra-type drugs correct. It would be interesting if you would spend a moment or two, sir, the whole notion about nitrous oxide and how it has evolved into these drugs, which are very helpful when someone has a real problem. Absolutely. There's a whole interesting lore to that. And actually part of the work that Eric Handel did, which he got Nobel Prize for, so had to do with this notion of nitric oxide was this discovery in a really very well recognized in the late 90s, people started to understand, as people always knew, if one remembered, people who had angina and heart trouble would take nitroglycerin pills when they got pain from heart and were on exertion. And there was always some sort of knowledge that nitric oxide in the form of these nitric, the nitric oxide in the form of the nitroglycerin pills helped in terms of vasodilation. So it made blood vessels open up. So people knew that. And there was always a sort of understanding of that how does nitric oxide which is essentially a gas, operate in the body. And what the real discovery was, was that basically there's a series of gases, nitric oxide being one of the better known ones, that actually work as neurotransmitters. So when people have heard about serotonin and norepinephrine as being involved in neural transmission, it turns out that nitric oxide is also a substance that actually moves across the synapse and makes nerve cells talk to each other and transmit information. And that was really the essential finding that as a secondary messenger, so in other words, these these compounds like norepinephrine or dopamine, et cetera, that people know about causes neurotransmitters, they set off a series of signals. Nitric oxide is further along in that. It's a second messenger, and it actually causes nerves to talk to each other and to react. A particularly interesting component about nitric oxide is when it works, it generally causes vasodilation and smooth muscle relaxation. And so that's basically why heart coronary vessels dilate and other phenomena like that occur. So 
So the discovery was, and actually the early sildenafil Viagra drug was being looked at as a cardiac drug, as a potential treatment for cardiac problems in terms of angina. didn't work very well in terms of angina patients, but it did turn out that because it worked on a different subsystem that had more to do with vasodilatation and smooth muscle relaxation, it increased blood flow in pelvic vasculature. And what was discovered in terms of that was that erectile function, which is a function of relaxation of blood vessels and penis becoming engorged with blood to cause erection, this was amplified by nitric oxide. And that was really the basis of looking at nitric oxide and these drugs, which more specifically affected this kind of vasculature. So in a way, the Viagra-type drugs offset what the antidepressants do. vasoconstriction, these drugs were causing vasodilatation. Is there anything in the pipeline that is going to be a good antidepressant that isn't going to cause the sexual dysfunctions? Do we have anything coming down the road? No, no, there's really not. The, the, the antidepressants, again, I, I think one of the sad things about some of the psychiatric drugs is they've been around for 40 or 50 years, nothing dramatically. I mean, they've been made a little neater, a little less complicated, less side effects. But in terms of the concept of antidepressant, they still hit these systems primarily. And they all cause, you know, are likely to cause varying degrees of sexual dysfunction. A lot of what of the amount of sexual dysfunction they cause or don't cause may not have that as much to do with the drug as even sort of a matching between the drug and some of the genetics of the individuals that are taking them. So right now, one is still basically at the point of trying to match patients to the drug. So what we find very frequently is it's very hard to predict. I mean, you can do a little bit with genomic testing, but that's not done in real-world practice. And I think what patients sometimes see is you try one SSRI and it works, and if it works, fine, and if it doesn't work, try another one, and one may have less side effects than the other, and, and so you can match that way. But that's basically the system that they work through. And it's important to remind us all that the sexual part of our lives is just not biological. It's very psychological, and that component has to be looked at as intensively as anything that we treat with the medication. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so there's a lot of matching that has to be done. There's certainly relationship issues that come into this. Um, also, expectations. I mean, I think even when we, we found when working with these drugs is, you know, this is something that the couple has to be involved with. And if the husband gets the medication, he doesn't suddenly come home with a surprise for the wife, you know, because <laughs> there, there really needs to be discussion and understanding of how it goes, and people have to try it and be able to work into it. Because, again, the people who've had sexual problems for any period of time, it has had an impact on their relationship. The relationship may still be good. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad relationship because they're not having sex, but they've adjusted to something on some level, and you don't want to just suddenly start rocking boats without everybody knowing what might happen or what might not happen. Very interesting. George Nuremberg is a professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, and he has talked to us today about the phenomena of sexual dysfunction associated with the use of certain medications, many of them being psychiatric medications, but certainly those from our general medical colleagues as well. Dr. Nuremberg, thank you so much for this. Uh, you're